The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everybody. It's Kat Sadler, and this is It Sure Is a Beautiful Day. I've spent decades in TV broadcasting and conducted hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews in the span of my career. And on this show, the conversations continue. My goal is that every episode feels entirely brand new, but also like coming home. Let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to It Sure Is a Beautiful Day. I am your host, Kat, and thank you for choosing this podcast. That really, really means a lot to me. So I just want to welcome you. Who knows? Maybe it's your first listen because um, we are discussing a, a a pretty important topic that affects so many people. Alcohol, booze, libations. What is alcohol? How does it affect our bodies? Well, I read a book. It's a New York bestseller, so I'm not the only one, but it's called Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker. And we are lucky enough today to have the author of that book with us. And by us, if you're new to the show, you know maybe I've done interviews for, for the span of my career, um, but I am now joined on occasion by Kate Madry. Kate is a friend. She's a former employee. Uh, she was an intern of mine, and but she is an actor and a comedian, and she's just another wonderful woman joining these conversations with maybe even a different experience or perspective. So I love doing shows with Kate as well. And she joins this conversation with Holly and I today because she too read the book and she is now a non-drinker. And let me tell you, Kate and I, (laughs) we have put them back together in our years that we've known one another. So If you've listened to any previous podcasts, you know we've kind of been exploring our relationship with alcohol and how we feel about alcohol or maybe questioning our consumption and just all the things that go along with that. And we know we are not alone. So many of you have reached out. You reached out with some questions for today's show, which we work into the conversation. Don't worry. So really, really powerful stuff. I'm going to get right to it, though. Before I do, subscribe to It Sure Is A Beautiful Day. If you will, please leave us those reviews. They really do matter. If there's a certain part of the show you really like or that resonates with you or maybe um, any kind of feedback that you have or take on the conversation or just any tips or advice, leave those reviews on Apple Podcasts because they really, really do matter and subscribing matters and share. Listen, if you like the episode and who doesn't have someone in our family or friend circle who might really get something out of this episode, really deep diving into the effects of alcohol and, and trust me, Holly's take, the reason this book resonated with us so much is that she really has us thinking about this drug in a different way. So it's pretty powerful stuff. I think you will agree. Um, I put the link to the book in the description there at the the bottom of the show notes and also a link to Holly's business, Tempest. 
It is an online recovery destination for people who are even just curious about getting sober. So it's a very open, holistic, inviting company that could be of help to either yourself or maybe somebody you know. So please share if you can. Lots of love. Let's get into it. Here is our conversation with author Holly Whitaker. Holly Whitaker, I tell you what, you you have been you've been on the target list, the radar of of women that both Kate and I have been so excited to talk to for a multitude of reasons, some personal and otherwise, but your story is so fascinating. Quit like a woman, the book is, dare I say, revolutionary and 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 just your whole business now as a as a founder of of a very much discussed and talked about destination for people who are considering to get sober. Well, we always like to start out the conversation with just really checking in with people in a real way and asking you how you are. How are you today? You know, people have heard your name. They know about your accomplishments and accolades now, but just how how is Holly the human doing? Oh God, no one ever asks me that. I am in it. I am going through a lot of changes at once and trying to find my footing and really trying to explore the space of being okay when things don't feel okay. And I think really exploring the space of, I've always been so goal-driven. I've always been goal-driven. I've always worked. And that's like force and fight has kind of been my way. And, you know, if you've read the book, you can probably feel that a lot of it is, is, you know, there's allowance, but there's a lot of fight. And I think I am trying to right now figure out how to have happiness that is like, independent of material outcome, meaning, right, like I wrote a book, it was on the New York Times bestseller, it's done really well, I started a company, it's done really well. I've, you know, I've, I've, I've hit the things that I, I wanted to hit, and those didn't yield happiness. And so how I'm doing right now is I've really just kind of thrown myself into it. And I'm actually that's what I'm, I'm that's what I happened, I, I meant to write a book about recovery. And I, I'm actually writing, like, what keeps coming out is just like how to navigate the space when we don't know what's going on with ourselves, mm. which is, I think, where mm. most people are mm-hmm. most of the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's that idea of getting comfortable with the uncertainty and not attaching to, like you said, all the lists and all the to-dos and the goals and all that is yeah. is is as healthy as that can be. It it really does, in a weird way, all come back to just trying to be okay in the moment. And as simple as that sounds, that's the the work I've been doing and the studying that I've been doing. And it brings me to, I mean, this as it pertains to alcohol, how drinking takes us away from that. It takes us away from being here now. It takes us away from the clearest version of our individual moment at said given time, which is always the now. But anyway, I wanted to start with a quote of yours that I just love for people who are listening who have not read the book. And we'll cover a lot of things because I have read the book, Kate has read the book. And uh, just so you know, my personal relationship for, for this conversation, I think it's important for you to know, I'm, I'm a drinker. And I am, um, but, I, but I'm curious. Right now I'm in this, I'm yeah. in this, your book, has put me in this stage of curbing. I, I'm taking inventory. I'm paying attention. Yeah. I'm I'm in that phase of my relationship yeah. with alcohol. Kate, yeah. how long has it been since you've had a drink? I, it's been about 210 days. And I got, your book helped me get sober. So 
this is like such a fun thing to get to talk to you and get advice. And I have questions because when you're going through sobriety and you're in recovery or you're becoming a non-drinker and you're getting more comfortable, your boundaries change and the way that you talk about drinking changes and your friendships that you had that were circled around drinking shift and you have to grieve them and you have to process all of the changes that come with like a clear head and being present. Like you were just saying, I've never been more yeah. present in my life because there's nothing right? blocking me. There's nothing. <laughs> I'm in nothing. I feel it all. Yeah. So yeah. 210 days. 210. And I'm so happy. I know. And, and, and what's wild, Holly, is if you were talking to both of us, a year ago, I mean, we wouldn't have even been doing this interview without tequila. And that is a true story. Yeah. So, but yeah. I want to start, yeah. I want to start with this quote because it's just so there's so many, your words are such a brilliant writer, but you you say, and I think this is on your Tempest website, but you say sobriety is not our great consequence. It is our invitation to the life we are supposed to be living, our invitation home. And I love that yeah. so much because it speaks right to back again that that being here now, like home is here if we can get rid of all of this out here, right? Is that what you meant by that quote? Or or do you remember writing that? Or when was that? I do remember writing that. So that's, I think, at the end of the chapter where I go over all the like guiding principle stuff, right? Like this is your adventure. And I think that to me, like it's not an easy choice, right? I think there's two choices that we have. I think one is we move through the life and like Marianne Williamson talks about like the dull aching pain, you know, versus the acute pain, like the dull aching pain of just putting up with, right? The dull aching pain of staying in the small box or staying in the comfort zone or dealing with what we feel is is safe or or good enough, or whatever it is that we do. Most of us do, and continue to do even after we get sober, right? And so I think there's the like the dull ache of putting up with, and then there's the acute pain of, con- of confronting. And so when I think about that, a lot of times historically, when we've talked about you know, sobriety specifically from alcohol, because we have this really weird relationship with alcohol in Western societies and growing across, you know, all societies where we think alcohol is this thing we're supposed to do, that it's this like great gift upon, you know, like great gift delivered to humans. There was just another book that was published. Literally, there was a book published recently that said, because alcohol has such a bad rap and it was about how great alcohol is and how important alcohol is. And alcohol does not have a bad rap. Alcohol actually flies under the radar like in when we're thinking about how much damage it actually does. And so I think that we constantly look at if you can't drink, you're losing out. You you don't like you're missing out. You're stepping away from the like too bad you couldn't make that work. Um, right. I literally was just at a restaurant, didn't order alcohol in Italy. And I said, I don't drink. And he goes, yikes, it happens. And like, it's just like, he was so sad for me, you know, and like, that's like the typical response, which is, oh, I'm so sorry. But I think that if we flip it and we really look at it, like when we make a choice to stop performing or engaging in a behavior that actually limits us, even if it's so painful, even if there's so many consequences to it, that's good. That's expansive. And that's what we're here to do as human beings. We're here to grow. We're here to expand. And alcohol keeps us from, from doing that. Mm-hmm. Will you talk a little bit about, just so we can frame this, your personal story? Because, I mean, you are here talking about it today because would you consider it your rock bottom? I mean, reading your book and those first couple chapters, I mean, I, I wasn't kidding when I emailed you and said, uh, 
crying in tears. I don't know if it's because it hit a little too close to home or what, but but your your the picture you paint of your life, I think so many people can really relate to that at the end of the day. Maybe not to the extreme of the amount of consumption, but just you were in a place yeah. pre-Holly today, you know, pre-getting sober, that was pretty fucking dark, right? I mean, yeah. pretty dark. So can yeah. you just in in as summarize as we can since we don't have three hours, but (laughs) can you concisely discuss where you were and how the shift or the decision came to attempt getting sober? Because I know it didn't happen maybe the first time, but, but that, that moment for you, the kind of the end of that life. I mean, it's nothing like where it wasn't just a flashpoint, right? And I think that there is, we move kind of along along a spectrum of awareness. Like you were both just saying a year ago, you'd have been drinking tequila and could you imagine, right? But it, it didn't just happen like this. It happened in that you had a shift in awareness. And I think for me, it was really over a period of time from 2009, I started this job and then also got into a relationship. Like the relationship fell apart. I was 30 and believed in this idea that it was my last chance at having kids. And I threw myself into my work. And I think it was just like, you know, the short story is I had a traumatic childhood and I never had the tools to self-manage. I've always been extremely sensitive. I can remember being depressed at eat, you know, an eating disorder starting at a really young age. I just never had the tools. And it just kept on, it was almost like a snowball effect of like just continuously picking up pain and never really having, knowing that I was normal in the pain that I was experiencing, knowing that like, this is what it is like to be human, feeling so absolutely like an alien here in society and doing all the things I thought I was supposed to do to make all that go away, which is get a good paying job or get into a relationship or, you know, start saving for your retirement or wear good clothes or, you know, have a specific size of a body. I mean, women are really like, given this construction, like you can hit these boxes, then you'll be fine. And so I was hitting all the boxes (laughs) and it just was spiraling out of control. And there was a shift in 2010 when I really made this decision that I just didn't care anymore. And I remember I was, it was right after the breakup, it was right after my grandpa died. I just woke up one morning and smoked a cigarette in my apartment, walked down the staircase in the lobby of my like indoor apartment. I was just like, fuck it. And came home from work, worked at night, you know, just kind of committed to this life of this will just be how it is, you know, drank a bottle of wine, eventually, you know, drank multiple bottles of wine and still couldn't identify that addiction was the problem. And again, like that really comes back to, I did not, like the last thing I ever wanted was to have addiction be my thing. I did not want to be one of those people. I did not want to be one of the people that could not, you know, go to the party anymore, that lost their drinking privilege, right? And so I think like it just, got so incredibly painful that I was willing to start observing it. And I had a morning and this is what I talk about in the book where I woke up and I was extremely hungover and I, I was, I was severely bulimic. I was addicted to pot. I was addicted to alcohol. I, you know, I, I smoked a ton of cigarettes and I woke up one morning and just was in so much pain and I don't need to go into the scene, but like the, like the point of it was, it was just like, I, like, I can't do this. I can't clean this up, head out into the world and then destroy myself again and then clean it up and then destroy myself again and then clean it up. And that was the cycle that I was in. And so I had a, like a very cliche moment where I fell on the floor and I screamed and I asked God for help. And then I think 
from that moment of uh, like asking for help and like this small little sliver of like surrender of like, I can't do this. I can't keep this up. I'm willing to change this. I don't, people constantly ask me like, where, where do I start? And it's just like, once you basically start leaning toward it, like you really can't stop it. Right. It's this allowance of like shift, like almost just like, all, like turning your body slightly into this different direction. And then the world opens up for you. And if you're paying attention, things flow into your experience that are going to help you make the change. And I've experienced that time and time and time and time again since then. So, yeah, I mean, it was a long process. It was a really, it was, it was like, it was dark, but I also think that it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I mean that in I would have, and like I wrote about, I would have kept clinging to this, the things that I, that felt safe, but that were just like that dull aching pain of, of putting up with. Yeah. Yeah. You started exploring sobriety after that moment and, and, and what you found wasn't exactly working for you. You know, you, you, you were not thrilled with the options available to you at the time. When you were considering getting sober, you said AA was not an option. It was a non-starter, a choice that seemed yeah. worse than actually the drinking problem itself. Yeah. Explain for the people who haven't read the book your, your position on AA and, and, and why you're a non-believer. Yeah. And I think it was, it's really important to understand that the idea of going to AA was too far of a leap for me. It was, I'm not that sick and I'm not one of them and I'm not going to admit my alcoholism. And I, there was just, I could not have made that leap. And so for me, I found a book called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol because I wanted to keep alcohol in my life, which is, I think, really important to validate both of your experiences, right? Like Kat and Kate, like Kat, you have a path and Kate, you have a path and both of them are equally valid. And I think that I needed the space to be able to figure out and come to the conclusion about my drinking. And oftentimes it's really shoved down our throat, like admit you have a problem and then go and do the work and follow this well-worn path. And I couldn't have gotten there. And so for me at first, it was just, well, I'm not that sick. And I, it would have destroyed me, I believe, if I had gone that route first. So I found my way in by reading a book that actually changed my life significantly and also eventually enabled me to use AA six months after the fact. And I did use AA for a time, but I think I had so, I had my, you know, beliefs are really the thing that underpins all of this. Our belief that drinking is important, our belief that maybe it's not like you've both had a shift in your fundamental belief system. And I think that the shift in my fundamental belief system was that alcohol is this terrible thing and that we were all kind of lemurs just like, you know, following really like ignorantly into this trap of addiction with alcohol. And the numbers really show that, right? It's the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. But I was able to understand I'm not like, I'm not an alcohol, I'm not just like this defective person. I was able to understand there were reasons that I was using alcohol that made complete and perfect sense. And Mm -hmm. also that um, there was a really empowering self-directed way forward out of it. And so I don't have an issue with like AA, the program. I think the thing that I really try and talk about in the book is specifically how, because AA is and has been the way that people recover 
people are expected to go through the program. And if not, they're questioned for the validity of, of their, you know, commitment. And so for me, it's not don't use AA. It's more of please be aware of who it was made for, when it was made, and and what persists. And and please be aware that you actually can create a recovery that includes or doesn't include, but but basically can be really based in agency and and in developing what works for you, not what you know other people say you should do. And that's a real that's also a concise version of, of it. Right. Instead of ah, oh, let's give you the label of alcoholic. Let's let's talk about this disease and oh, you know what a shame. This is yeah. and for you, you're different. And instead, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, building people up, like you just said, empowering their decision and their choices and their own individual path as it pertains to their relationship with alcohol. You don't believe yeah. in the word alcoholic, correct? I mean, I read that, but like, you know, or what what is your take on on that? Well, I think first it goes back to people have a choice, right? There are many people that I know that are centered in the same belief system that I am. Um, that absolutely love AA and felt like that label alcoholic was extremely like served them. So it's more about the choice to be able to like going in eyes wide open and being able to make informed decisions about alcohol and also about treatment. But specifically, the you know the term alcoholic really implies that there's something fundamentally wrong with you that you're allergic to alcohol, which is just wild in a way because um, alcohol is a neurotoxic, carcinogenic, addictive substance. It's something that alters your brain. Um, it's something that if you do enough of, you'll become addicted to it. And so there's actually, it's the same as, you know, like we don't call people who smoke cigarettes, cigarette-aholics and say, oh, everyone else in the general population is able to handle cigarettes normally. Um, you take it too far. So there must be something wrong with you. And so there's, there's a lot of reasons behind it. I go over a lot of them in the book, but the main one is just that, which is instead of assuming there's something wrong with people who have a hard time making alcohol work. It's assuming there's something um, inherently toxic about the substance and also the way that we're conditioned to use it. Right. And you do such, such, I mean, that might be one of my favorite chapters in the book. I think the one that really resonated with me the most was when you were like kind of detailing the science of alcohol and like how, what it is and how it affects our bodies. And I was just like, I, I literally physically didn't want to drink simply from, cause I, I do love my body. And you know, I'm like yeah. so many people who are over here doing the yoga and doing the health and taking the supplements and downing the potions to, to be my healthiest self, but yet drinking Celery every day. Juice. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's wild. It's, like, it's wild. It's like, yeah. oh, let me poison myself, but I'm going to go over here and do everything in my power to, you know, be my maximized healthiest self. So it, it is such a contradiction, but I, but to your point, which you touched on earlier, it's so much of that is because you know, we don't see billboards telling us alcohol is killing us, right? We see mm-hmm. cigarette packages no. telling us that it's killing yeah. us, but we don't. Yeah. The way the system has been structured and the other thing that you so eloquently talk about is the oppression of women in particular and how it pertains to this industry. You go so far to talk about how it, I mean, it's literally oppressive. You know, it's the patriarchy once again, uh, gra- grabbing a hold of us <laughs> and keeping us down. And I'd never thought about it like that. Can you explain yeah. how that is or how you see it? Or Because I think a lot of my mostly female audience will appreciate seeing it reframed in the way that you describe it. Yeah. And I think there's, it's, it's important. And I think it was one of these things that especially around 2016, and I think like as fourth wave feminism, like really fired up 
there was like so much involvement of alcohol in that scene. And I write about this specifically, but like I subscribed to bitch magazine and most of the things that they were inviting me to involved alcohol. And it just felt like extremely weird that they were pushing something that is a large industry, something that profits mostly men and pushing that within conversations where we were talking about how to gain our power back. And it's one of the most, I would say like, like specifically one of the most disempowering substance we can consume. But the long, the long and the short of it is essentially like I track it back to how do we come to essentially, I read an article years ago. One of my friends sent me an article about cigarettes saying that when women weren't smoking a ton of cigarettes way back in the you know early 1900s, because cigarettes had mostly been something that had been, it was a, like men smoked. It was, you know, essentially like something that, you know, after World War One there was, you know, brand loyalty. Women weren't smoking as much. Men were smoking. And then essentially like cigarette companies created a PR stunt that put a cigarette in feminists' hands took pictures of them, put them in a newspaper and, and called it Torches of Freedom. And so in other words, there was this constructed imagery of feminism and women's lib movement and attaching it to cigarettes and calling cigarettes literally Torches of Freedom um, and showing us this is what we do, right? Like, you know, the same way that we're influenced today. This is what we do. This is a symbol of, mm-hmm. of how we demonstrate our, our, our independence. And it really, that same imagery Alcohol has been tied up into that same imagery. And then also since the advent of social media, it's not just done through PR. It's not just done through large marketing budgets. It's also done by us showing each other how to use alcohol. And so engineered consent is a subject I talk about in the book. And engineered consent is just essentially this idea that we aren't necessarily swayed by a marketing campaign but we are swayed by other behavior, like behavior that we see conspicuous consumption that is engineered in such a way to make us adopt it. And in that way, alcohol really has been fed to us as this like equalizer. We drink like men, you know, like we, like we're, we wear our power suits and we can drink whiskey meats or, or we're mom, like, you know, now like we're moms and, you know, we deserve to have our fun. So we drink wine, you know, during the day, like, this imagery of how alcohol is consumed has like not even slowly, it's very quickly been saturating our social media feeds and I mean and, and like our gift shop, like everything we do, right? There's yoga and wine, there's you know, there there's almost every like experience that we have is really tied now to the consumption of alcohol to the extent that we think consuming the alcohol is the point of doing anything at all. And so it is born of the same idea that the the smoking imagery was born of, which is the way to get women to consume more if they're trailing the men um, mm-hmm. is to show them how to use it and also make this all seem extremely normal. And so it's just like, it, it's wild when you look at it, when you really like step back from it and you start to see it, it's, it's nauseating, completely nauseating. Have you noticed that, Kate? I mean, because Kate, you're you're 200 days in here. Have you, I mean, because I have, and I, just since reading your book, you know, I was in a gift shop recently at a hotel, same thing. All the, all the little tchotchkes of the wine mom and the ha ha ha. And I had, I just, my eyes were closed to that before, I guess. And I consider myself a pretty aware person, but it goes back to that whole belief system. Now that I'm questioning it, I'm seeing all these things. And I just binged Mad Men for God's sakes for the first time. I'm a little late to that game, but I was like, oh, when I got done with that before your book, I was like, oh, 
oh, fixing my bar cart. And it's so sexy. And like, oh my God, I wanted to drink more after watching that show. You know, I was like, oh yeah, sexy. Maybe I'll find Mr. Right. You know, I know what to do because I watch Mad Men. But Kate, for you, like you must, this must just be glaring for you now that your eyes are wide open. Yeah, it is one of those things where it's like once you learn it, you can't unlearn it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, I also read Alan Carr's book. I read The Easy Way to Quit Drinking, which is so interesting because I still haven't finished it in like a weird way because he makes this promise. Like by the time you finish this book, you'll never <laughs> drink again. And I don't know why I haven't finished it, but I don't know. That's for my therapist. <laughs> That's for my therapist. That's another convo. Um it is everywhere. It is. I open TikTok and it is, you know, uh, a TikTok of when you want to be this person and this person. And it's somebody, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow running the hills of Hollywood and also Gwyneth Paltrow, like making a, you know, a martini. And it's like, you strive to have that balance. And I feel like that's what I've noticed has been pushed more than anything is you should have this balance, everything in moderation, everything in moderation, you should be able to, to drink and also, exercise and also, you know, get a degree and also have the perfect relationship and make money. And this expectation, I think, put on women to have it all figured out and be able to balance the poison with the pleasure is so everywhere, everywhere. And I can't speak to other, you know, ages, but especially I'm noticing it in the twenties, you know, from, for my my age group, it is so you better be able to balance it. You really better be able to have that mocktail on zoom or put it in the coffee cup and get your job done. And it's just like mind blowing. You really don't notice how much it is present until you are actively trying not to do it. (laughs) Yeah, it is everywhere. And it's one of these things too. I think when you take a step back from it and I like the way that I really like, like to think about it is it's divesting, right? When you're looking at alcohol and you're looking at like who's actually profiting off of it, like the same, the trajectory of cigarettes was go after the male market. Okay. They're starting to die off. Increase your population. Go after the female market. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're starting to die off. What do you do next? You go out and you go into low to middle income countries and you normalize smoking in those places. And so if you actually look at the the trajectory of cigarettes and, and, and essentially the markets they saturated, it was first men then women, and then it was global. And it's the same exact thing, which is first men, then women, and then essentially going into countries where alcohol is not a normalized you know, ceremonial drug or, mm-hmm. or pleasurable drug. And the same thing happens. So when you look at it that way too, like as this, they have to expand their market because they're killing off their best customers. It's the same thing that I think I remember watching. Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. The movie with Russell Crowe where he was the like cigarette informant and just having my mind, like just being so disgusted and turned off to understand who's, who's profiting off of this. Mm-hmm. And we look at alcohol and asking like, who's actually profiting off of this? It's none of us. None of us are actually like on the upside of it, right? There's a few companies that are on the upside. Well, right. that, that's an interesting point too. Um, and, and we are going to get to Tempest and I do want to talk about that. But just since we're on the subject of of the industry itself, 
I remember you also said in the book, you know, like maybe one day there will be this shift, how it was with cigarettes. You know, people aren't necessarily smoking in their cars anymore or on airplanes anymore or inside anymore, because at least they, the information is out there as it pertains to alcohol right now. Interestingly enough, the non-drinking, what is it? This zero proof market is, is merging with drinks that are targeted to non-drinkers, all these beverages now that are out there that, 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 at least can help the non-drinker feel like they have a drink um, when they're out yeah. or when you're at home or whatnot. Do you like the idea of that? Do you think that's a good shift? Is that progress that we're seeing a boom in, in that particular corner of the market? Well, I mean, a lot of that's still owned by the drinks industry, right? Right. And so like, there's also, you know, like green drinks. So like as cannabis becomes legal, you know, there's also going to be a shift in our consumption patterns there and that, We've seen the drinks industry buy up in, in that space as well. Some of the, I, don't, I won't name names, but like some of the mocktail drinks that were sold are, are essentially like early stage industries for when it does become legal to actually create cannabis drinks. And so I think like the main thing is like, we're all living within like, like late stage capitalism, right? Like we have to make our choices. Like <laughs> we can't like completely withdraw from the system. We have to make our choices. I think there's good sides to it, right? It's great. That there is that there are options, right? When I not long ago, when I stopped drinking, it was bring my own tea bags to the bar. It was seltzer water. It was diet coke or sometimes really terrible coffee, um, and it's lovely. Like I, the first time I had a mocktail in a restaurant from a menu was like 2018, and it was shockingly lovely, right? Like oh, I get to have this experience, and but I, I think it's it's like anything else, right? I think that like one of the things that I've tried to stay grounded in, in my own practice of this is understanding that the choice to to quit drinking is a choice to basically step out of a system, right? Mm -hmm. Like it it is the choice to, it's, it's it's a bit of a radical choice to step out of a system, right? It's subversive. You are basically saying, I'm not gonna go along with this. Um, It still is, extremely irregular to not drink, even though the three of us might now have it in our sites that there's mm-hmm. this big sobriety movement. It's still really, really small, really nascent. I'm on this, you know, wave of wanting to feel very, you know, like I'm not missing out on anything. And so I definitely am like, oh, an alcohol-free beer. That's something fun to have for summer. Cause this is like my first summer where I'm not like knocking them back poolside. So I'm like, okay, I'll do like a, a non-al beer. But it is interesting to think about the fact that it's the same company that is still turning around and selling the poison. So yeah. how, you know, and you know, sobriety isn't linear, you know, for everyone and it evolves and changes and this, it, it's ever changing with how you cope. And I know you mentioned like your toolbox, like your tea bags and your oils and your lozenges. And I think that that's fun to talk about developing yeah. this safety kit kind of, of yeah. what makes you feel special and fun and that's what right. does that look like? What is that? What is yours now? Like you were talking about how you would do the Diet Cokes and the tea bags and all that. How has that evolved? Are you still, are, are there still things that you love and you have all the time? A lavender oil, which I just ordered on Italian Amazon, <laughs> um, is something like I... I keep, I do my meditations daily. I keep a yoga practice. I have more moved into non-negotiables. I don't have to like, toolboxes are really important in order to 
help, like they were staples in helping me to deal with things when I didn't have any other tools, right? Like I didn't have other coping mechanisms. I'm eight years sober now. And I think that for the most part, it's rare when I find myself in a situation where I need something in that moment to help me manage and make it through. But I do keep, I have non-negotiables in my practice, which is I stay super hydrated. Like what, like making sure I drink a ton of water each day is really important. Meditation is extremely important. Community is important. A yoga practice is important. Writing and creating is important. And so there are things that I keep in my life. There's like, you know, 10 things and I do five of them every day, journaling and so on and so forth. But I think like to the extent of like going back to what we were just talking about too, I want to be clear. I think it's really like a beautiful thing to be able to have like a delicious alcohol-free IPA. Like we get to have nice things too. And that stuff is extremely important, especially when you feel like you're losing a part of so much of what our society communes over. Mm-hmm. Commune. Yeah. That's a good good word. Communal. I mean, that's that's a little bit of where... I'm at at this moment is after I started taking my inventory after reading your book. And it's funny what you had said, Kate, where you haven't finished the rest of that other book. Cause that's kind of how I was about quit like a woman. Cause everybody had been talking about it and it kept kind of popping up and Kate had read it. And I had, I remember I went to audible and I downloaded the book and I had it there for maybe a month before I was ready. You know, I just wasn't, I was yeah. like, I'm not, I don't think I'm gonna, I don't, I don't think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go to this book first. You know, it just, I wasn't there yet. Um, And then once you go there, now I'm at this point where after taking my own personal inventory, I'm like, yeah, why do I always have a beer when I do yard work? Or why do I always need a glass of wine when I'm cooking dinner for my kids? And so my, my little deal with myself right now is that, you know, during the week, especially at home, I just don't drink. And, but, but here's the big, but, you know, but the, the hardest part for me so far, and it's not, particularly, I haven't, it's not like I feel like a lack or deprivation or anything like things you talked about, but it's the social, it's that communal bit. Like you're talking about, that's the piece when I go out for dinner with a friend or because I know I have a party on Saturday, I'm at that point where I'm still allowing myself in those situations. But I do, I mean, obviously that's the, probably the most difficult part for people in recovery. It's that social piece. So I want to go back to speaking to people if they're listening, because I think there are a lot of people who are in that curious stage and the questioning stage, maybe not not in recovery yet, but are really considering it or really trying to measure where they are with things. Talk about about Tempest because you weren't finding, you know, a place that that spoke to you. So you went out and created one and you have this now holistic digital recovery destination for people who not necessarily are alcoholics, but who just want to reframe their relationship with alcohol. Will you tell people a little bit about that and why you created it? Yeah. So I got sober in, I started to work on quitting drinking in 2012. I got sober in 2013. And then in early 2014, over that year, I think it was just, for me, there was nothing. I mean, there really wasn't. There was, you know, smart recovery meetings. There was a, um, a meeting at the, the Zen Center in San Francisco. There was just not a lot of, of alternatives that were really available. I ended up joining and going through um, Kundalini yoga teacher training and then another like vinyasa yoga teacher training, which is where I really found like my solid community. And I had this, I remember like Googling, what do you do for fun if you're sober um, in San Francisco? And there was this guy named Bucky Sinister. 
And he had written an article and I think he like went to his local neighborhood. God, I wish I really should go back and find that article. But he was like, I go to the, I go to the VHS store and I buy a VHS and I put my VHS tape in and, and like I, and I go to meetings, you know, and sorry, I have like, there's, I have like 50 mosquito bites on me. So it's <laughs> me scratching myself. It's because <laughs> when in Rome, yeah. tiger mosquitoes, <laughs> they're called tiger mosquitoes and I'm desperately allergic to them. Anyway, um, oh, no. so it was just, maybe that's why you don't feel good. Hello. Yeah. That's what's on my face too. Um, so essentially the whole thing was, it was lonely. My family didn't understand what was happening to me. I didn't go the normal route. So I didn't have a way to make friends. I tried to start this thing called sobriety club for girls in my apartment. So I just have strangers from meetup come to my apartment. I was painfully awkward. It was just really, it was lonely. And also I had a very different belief system. And I, I found often that I had to like keep my beliefs to myself. Mm. These people did not understand it. My beliefs were all, oh, I think we're probably all going to probably, I think we're all going to quit drinking at some point, or I think we're going to look at alcohol the way we look at cigarettes, or I think alcohol is such a waste of everyone's time. Or I don't look at myself as sick and always going to be sick and having to mind my alcoholism one day at a time. You know, like I just had a very different thought system around it. And so I didn't intend to really like, I mean, it's kind of hard when you to go back and recreate it. I was always moving in that direction, but I wasn't really necessarily like understanding what it was I wanted to create. And then in 2015, I started an eight week program and I opened it up and there were 13 women that joined me. And it was, you know, you know, basically it was, it's for people that were looking to change their relationship with alcohol. And I, I stressed that part, like you don't have to qualify if you want to pull the thread. And I ended up working with 13 people. And I don't think any of them identified as alcoholic. I think they probably all would have qualified on the spectrum of alcohol use disorder. And at the end of it, you know, a high percentage of them had quit drinking. It was called Hip Sobriety School. I ran that program multiple times with, you know, the second time I ran it, I had 111 people in it. The time after that, mm. that I ran it, it was like 170 people in it. It was really successful in that sense of people loved it. People wanted to keep doing it. And it seemed to be working. And so that is like Tempest is really founded on this ethos of, of and, and the, the company's mission is to put people at the center of their recovery. And the idea of this is to give people essentially like the environment from which they can develop and piece together uh, their own recovery plans that may look extremely different than the next person, but also allow people to be recognized in that choice and, and also validate the choices that they're making and the time that it takes and, and, and whatnot. So that's what Tempest is. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a modern solution that really is, is intended to help people, you know, basically just put together recovery plans. Kate, I know you had some questions kind of about the business of Tempest. I mean, feel free to go there. Yeah. Well, one, I just want to say that what you have created and this realization that you have put out there with Tempest that every it doesn't have to be AA and you're a drink away from ruining your life and there can be a path where you're not an, defined as an alcoholic. I know in your book, you say that you were using that term and your friend turned to you and said, you know, you don't have to call yourself that. Just the freedom in that is so, I think, important for people to hear that you don't have to label yourself in order to cut something essentially toxic out of your life. You don't have to get there. It, it really can be so simple and beautiful. And I love that about what you've created. I also wanted to touch about 
the fact that you did transition from hip sobriety to Tempest. And in your in the blog post where you wrote and explained why you were making the adjustment, you said that you were kind of struggling, a daily struggle between feeling a calling to do something so grand that was so deeply irrational and a call to be present mm-hmm. to be where I was to let things unfold. And I think it's just so important. And I, I just want to get kind of your headspace, if you don't mind going back to that headspace of creating something that you feel so passionate about and kind of feeling stuck in it. Because so often businesses, mm-hmm. when they're built, are are presented as this romantic struggle of like just perseverance and passion and and dedication and and then you get what you want and then there's a result. But for you, there was really like a struggle between how do I keep this going and then how do I be present? So how did you navigate that? Wow, barely. I think that, you know, I did a I did a podcast recently with one of my friends, Nick Antoinette, and we talked about this for like two hours. But it was really hard for me. Thank you for asking that question, first of all. Um, because I think that that is, and that's why I'm in Italy, right? I think that I... It's so strange because I was very, I was convicted. Like uh, all of my anger, right? All of my, I was, I was furious when I got sober. Forgive me if I cry. Um, but I took all of that, right? I took all of that, like you know, that my insurance card didn't work, or that I had zero support, or that my family bought a book, and that was the extent of their contribution. You know, that it was just like, it felt I had to work so hard to pull together something and still it was attacked, right? It was questioned. You're not doing it right. You're doing this other thing. And and that is a very real thing. And and I don't know, Kate, have, have you experienced this? Like, were you, yes. people are at, okay, yeah. Yeah, like you're, you're I, when I them. say yeah. I'm, I'm sober, I'm teary too. It's a struggle, you know, it's, 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 it's a hurdle when I'm like, when I share that I'm not drinking or that I'm sober, there's such polar reactions. There's immense support. And then there's kind of people questioning their own relationship with alcohol and minimizing my choice. But the, the singular thing is, oh, are you, are you going to AA? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. do you not know what they stand for? Anonymous? Like, you, like why yeah. are you asking what I'm yeah. doing? <laughs> Especially with something that's yeah. supposed to be anonymous. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then the reaction that I get when I say no is so like wind knocks out of you because it's not always as supportive as you want it to be. And I imagine for you to try to, you're creating something that is not that formula that goes even deeper. Not only are you not doing it, but you're trying to create something that goes not necessarily against what, what is being taught. But yeah, to to the average person, they might say, yeah, that's, you're going against what has worked. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but I mean, what I'm hearing you both say is, you know, on the one hand, you're making the most empowering choice of all to love thyself in the purest of ways. And, but it can be the most isolating, lonely place there is to exist. Yeah. It's very true. And I think it's, and, and also what I found, and I tried to write this into the book, which was like this, like the doubter actually strengthened me. The isolation actually strength, like all of that stuff actually strengthened me, but it also really laid this blueprint for, I want this to change. 
I think that it's a really interesting thing and something I want to touch on based on Brady's testimony yesterday is something that's really specific to this, that, which is that alcohol, I mean, like historically, anybody that struggled with addiction or mental health issues, right, lock them up, like get them out of the way. Um, they can't be trusted. And oftentimes women are gaslit into believing that they have mental health issues in order to be stripped of their power. And mm. so did either of you read her testimony yesterday? Yes. I, I found an audio yes. file. It put me to, it was literally my bedtime story. I literally fell you asleep. You found an audio? Yes. It's uh, on YouTube. I for it. It's on YouTube. Okay, or right. It might be okay. gone by now, but I literally went to bed try, trying to listen to it. It was wild and it was yeah. very upsetting. It's probably I had such a terrible night's sleep, but yes, yes. I know, I know where you're going with this. It's just. Right. The, the point is that that's such an obvious case of somebody, somebody being essentially like, it's, it's the patriarchy working extremely well at keeping somebody out of their power. I keep a woman out of her power and using the old, well, she's not, you know, fit enough to, you know, make choices about procreating, marrying mm -hmm. her own money. Mm -hmm. um, we'll decide. So we'll decide for her. We'll decide mm -hmm. for her. Uh -huh. But, uh, you know, so I think that there, that piece of it is extremely important in this, which is that I found at the moment that I had decided to do something about a long-standing problem. And I'm not talking about just alcohol. I'm talking about, you know, releasing trauma. I'm talking about eat, like all of it was, I was not helped. I was, the thing that people had the strongest reaction to was that I was making my own choices about it. Mm. And I think that that is something that can get lost in a lot of the material of the book, but that was the point of the book. That was the point of the work, mm -hmm. which was that this class of individuals that for so long have been takers, you know, like you get the, you get the basement, right? Like, and I, right. again, this is not to undermine AA, but this is to say that for so long, this class of individuals, and, and even you look at like the Derek Chauvin trial, right? Mm -hmm. And they're putting George Floyd on like the, the unassailable thing is, did he have a substance abuse issue? Because then that would have invalidated him and that right. would have made him less than human. Yeah. Um, that like, like that is the thing that we constantly devalue human life for across, across every intersection of identity. And so the point I'm saying is that this group of individuals, people that struggle with their mental health or people that struggle with addiction are, are, the, are, are so far away from being able to say, this is my choice. This is how I'm doing. Respect it. Don't question it. Um, right. and that is the purpose of the book. That is the purpose of what the program was, which was, I want to trust these people. I want to tell these people specifically that think they don't count and that they don't get to make choices anymore because they've lost some credibility within the society by design. I want to give them the power to make the choices that they need to make in a way that is esteeming and that tells them that. Because when you do that for individuals, that is where our healing comes from. Our healing comes from that sense of ownership over our own lives and the choices that we make. And so that was always the essence of that program. It became Tempest because I, I created it and I couldn't not, but I wanted it. I didn't want to help a few hundred people. I really wanted to change things drastically. And, and I think that each of us has like our own calling, our own code. And it was the thing that like made sense, which was like, make it as big as you possibly can. And so that is why it, it became an organization. It's also why I found another CEO to run it um, because I built the early part of it, but I can't take it, you know, past where I got it. Which I so admire. 
I mean, I want to be a CEO one day. I want to like build an empire. I want to, you know, run this shit. Like I'm totally there. And I think it's so refreshing that you saw it. You did it. You realize you didn't want it anymore. And you handed off the baby, you know, like you, you, you're handing this to somebody who hopefully you, I'm assuming you completely trust and aligns with your values, but it's so not taught really that you can climb the mountain and then ask somebody to help you walk back down it. Like it's more put, especially in like the business world, it's like you run it, you do it. That's yours. That's yours. You white knuckle it and you don't let it go. But it's important to know that you can let it go. You can shift, you can pivot your boundaries and what are good for you and what's good for your mental health is ever changing. And so can your title, you know, you're so smart. It's like, like, like scream that because it's so true. We're allowed to change our minds, right? We're allowed to want things. And then we're also allowed to change our minds. And also, I think that we're allowed to protect our mental health and do whatever is required to protect our mental health. And this idea that we're supposed to be Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, well, that's Mm -hmm. not my idea. Mm -hmm. Those are someone else's ideas. Those aren't my ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you have this, I mean, I love the way that you write this book because there's so many different, you know, the seven reasons or the seven things you wish you would have known about relationships before getting sober. And I think number three is like, you can change. And then number four is, I have it written down because I want to ask you specifically about it. Oh yes. My favorite quote in life is you teach people how to treat you. Yeah. Hello, empowering. <laughs> did you know that you could teach you how to treat you? Because I didn't. I did not. But that teaching is ever changing, just like how you say you can change for the right. third. But That's do you right. have any advice? Because I feel like you're going through it right now with this transition of what what your role is is changing in business, and then you're kind of coming to this point where you're trying to learn to just be present and to re, you know, prioritize what's important to you. But with that kind of comes like different boundaries. Do you have any, do you have anything that you go to and like, how do you reteach people when you yourself evolve? Oh God. Well, I mean, it's just by living it. It really is. And I think like I changed, I think I've gone through many cycles of change. I'm going through one right now. And it's meant that I've shaved some friendships. And it's also meant that like with some friendships, I literally had to like tell one of my friends a couple of weeks ago, um, I don't like how our friendship is going. Mm -hmm. I don't like this about the dynamic. I don't, this is how this feels for me. I also need a week to like sit in this and I'm giving you the heads up. And if you want to like meet me on the bridge in a week, you know, I'll be (laughs) here for that phone call. And, and she met me on the bridge in a week. And, you know, and I think that like it, what has been, what has been, it's a journey, right? It's a forever journey. And I'll probably like that, like the, the joke of it is that you think that you, like, I thought at some point I had it, (laughs) I thought I had so much figured out. I probably wouldn't have been able to write that book now, right? Because I think the more that we know, like the more we understand, we don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But I, I think that the way that as you shift, it's just like, it's just that commitment to growth. And I am again, reestablishing boundaries with my sister, which is the most difficult relationship that I have. Mm -hmm. And it is again, like, it is knowing how to meet your own needs 
And then very, very clearly like asking for that in relationship. And it's not easy, but the more that you do it and the more you clearly communicate your standards and your boundaries, even as they shift, because you get to change, you get to establish a boundary and then you also get to move it and not in a way where it's confusing and you're always darting or you're falling back on. But I, mm-hmm. I mean that in the sense of you get to continuously as you grow and evolve set boundaries that you need to set for yourself in relationship and in the world. And so now, my, right now specifically, um, I'm taking a hiatus from social media. I don't want to talk right now. Um, I am, you know, I'm doing this interview, but I'm also not doing really any at all. I am. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to do this. But I think like, it's just a matter of kind of reassessing where I'm at and then also going from there and and having the audacity to believe that I deserve, you know, what I need um, and what I want. We all do. It's like giving yourself permission to value your peace. And it's, yeah. So hard to come by sometimes. I mean, what a strange concept. Do you think the, the guys are out there discussing like, well, I'm going to maybe consider giving myself what I need and listening to my, you know, I'm like, come on. You know? I'm going to set some boundaries. I yeah. know. Let's, let's set some boundaries at the next event. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> God, Holly, I just can't thank you enough. I know you're, you're busy and you're trying to be on like hiatus and you're trying to go undercover and write all your things and you're dealing with your mosquitoes and you took the time. And this just really, really meant a lot to us. I just know our listeners are going to just get so much from this. I know Kate could hardly sleep last night. She was so excited to speak with you. (laughs) And, um, and we just can't wait for the, for the follow-up, whether it's recovery or whether it's whatever it is, we know it's going to be good. Whatever it is, whatever it is. Yeah. What it will be, will be. What it will be. Well, it's been a pleasure on this side. So thank you both. Appreciate it. Congrats to you you both. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Eat some truffles for me, please. Uh, oh, I've had too many. The best <laughs> food in the world. I'm coming back. I'm coming back to Italy. Um, be well. Lots of love. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you both. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And a reminder, you can catch a brand new episode of It Sure Is a Beautiful Day every Tuesday. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And of course, I'd love to hear from you. So leave me a rating and leave me a review. Also, follow us on social media for all the behind the scenes action and more info. That's at I am Kat Sadler on Instagram and at ABD with Kat. Talk to you next Tuesday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.